The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Kinsey from the I Love You So Much podcast. On my show, we talk about everything lifestyle, business, finance, beauty, you name it. My favorite part about the show is the amazing guests that we bring on. We have everyone ranging from like business experts to influencers, CEOs, creative masterminds. It's so much fun. If you guys want to find me on Instagram, and it's just at Kinsey Elizabeth, I release new episodes every Thursday. So hope to see you there. Hey, this is just a friendly reminder to make sure that you are registered to vote for the upcoming elections in November. Make sure to text the word voter to 26797 right now to check your registration and to receive your polling location and reminders for all local, state, and federal elections in the future. Thank you. Hi, this is Deborah Messing. I'm an actress and social justice advocate. I am Mandana Dayani, creator and co-founder of the nonpartisan movement, I Am a Voter. So Mandana and I are very close friends, and we're constantly sending each other stories of people who completely blow our minds. And then one day, we realized something. Most of them had no intention of becoming heroes. They just knew they had to do something and did it. So we decided to do what we do best, completely geek out on endless hours of research. And we cannot wait to present you with our list of the 20 dissenters who blew us away. Based on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's iconic I dissent slogan, a dissenter is someone who stood up to an injustice or challenged the status quo, someone who fought to build a better way. Each episode, we will meet one of these incredible accidental activists and learn all about their journeys. This week, we speak with Zach Scow, the founder of Marley's Mutts. After a near-death experience from which Zach's dogs rescued him, he created this amazing nonprofit organization that rescues, rehabilitates, trains, and rehomes dogs from high-kill shelters. His organization has already saved thousands and thousands of these beautiful mutts. And to further his mission to save what society can often deem, quote, the throwaways, he also founded Positive Change, a progressive and intensive rehabilitation training program that matches death row dogs with inmates inside California state prisons. Zach is my favorite person in the world, and I am fully obsessed with him and Cora and Marley's mutts. She's not kidding. Deborah nearly fainted when Zach got out of the elevator to come meet us, and they both literally cried during this interview. <laughs> we did. We cried. And he is a real-life superhero. This story will completely blow you away. It is unlike anything you've ever heard. So please, get ready for this. You will thank us for bringing Zach into your life. And now, it is our greatest honor to introduce you to the incredible Zach Scow, the rescue savior. So, I have been waiting for this for... At least a year, we have Zach Scow, the creator of Marley's Mutts, with us, and his beautiful Cora is in the room with us. Welcome! Thank you very, very much. Oh. I'm so excited to be here, and uh, I'm filled with love, filled with happiness. This is very special. I've never seen Deborah this excited about anything 
that we have ever done Seriously. together. I'm not. There's no part of me that's exaggerating. Well, I wanted to uh, prepare for this by watching reruns all night. Oh no, time. it was a busy <laughs> night. We're at the hospital till like nine. So yeah, happen, I think but. what you were doing is probably much more important. Okay, your story is so unbelievable and inspiring. We want to cover all of it. Yeah. So can we start with your childhood and getting right into your teenage years? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Hermosa Beach, California, so just down the road, one square mile beach town. I had a pretty regular upbringing for in terms of where I grew up. You know, I have a twin brother. Oh. I come from a broken home. You know, my parents got divorced when we were very young. Both my brother and I were born premature, two months premature. I mean, it was a great life, to be honest. It was a wonderful place to grow up. The South Bay is, is still my home, even though I don't live there. You know, all of my friends still live there, and I still do service work in my hometown, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, through the Alano Club or through my high school. I still return to my high school as the drug addict who comes and talks to the kids. I remember the guy who did it at our high school. Fantastic. I would have never never thought I'd be so stoked to say I'm that guy, but but I get to be that guy. So, well, why don't you tell us how you became a drug addict? You know, it's it's hard to explain. You know, I don't know that there was an initial mover, like a catalyst, or I know I'm hereditarily inclined to alcoholism and drug addiction. My dad's dad died of liver failure at 41 years old in July 3rd, 1961. Wow. So my dad was 15. He had just turned 15 at the time. And my dad didn't really know his dad. And what he did know was a lot of abuse, a lot Mm. of physical abuse, a lot of emotional, mental abuse. So, you know, I definitely have that. He he died of liver disease, which is the same disease I have, acute alcoholic hepatitis. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. I had cirrhosis of the liver. My liver has since improved, but we'll we'll get to that later. But, you know, it was a lot of things that kind of culminated. I, I don't know that I ever felt comfortable in my own skin. I don't know that I ever looked in the mirror and saw what other people saw. And I really, I had a hard time accepting myself. I had a hard time being okay with me for mm-hmm. a very long time. And a series of, just like anything, you know, we kind of accumulate trauma in our lives. We go through a lot of different things and, mm-hmm. and uh, that takes away, kind of dulls our shine a little bit. And then before you know it, you've found something else to fill you up, found yeah. something else to help you try to deal with being alive. You know, there was abuse that I went through, you know, sexual abuse as a kid that at the time I didn't know why I felt the way I did. I didn't know that those emotions were related to that trauma. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But as I got older and got into therapy and got into different sobriety programs. I was able to really like pour out everything that was inside of me and mm-hmm. have other people help connect the dots for me. And yeah, that abuse was definitely something that contributed a lot to my alcoholism and drug addiction, mainly because I felt so uncomfortable around women. You know, the sexual contact was a female family member. So I didn't realize that's why I was terrified of women. I mean, wow. any kind of intimate situation. And when you're, when you're coming of age, it was probably like nine to or eight to like 11, 12. You have your first arousal yeah. as a boy, you know, with a family member. It was very confusing for me. And I, I don't think I knew how it affected me at the time. I don't, I don't think I, I didn't really equate it to any sort of abuse. So mm-hmm. I didn't connect the dots. Explaining it to a therapist, it was very obvious to them. And they had to kind of sit me down and shake me and go, hey, listen, you know, we need to pause on this and we need to reflect on this for several sessions because this is critical. And yeah, I mean, I just remember as a kid being, you know, I was a good looking kid and I was popular and I played sports. And so your next indicated thing is, well, you're going to start dating. And I would have full on panic attacks. So that was my experience for so many years is that my anxieties, and I would go into a panic attack anytime there was an intimate situation. I I just thought I was broken. When I was younger, I thought I was gay. Uh Not because I liked men. I grew up in a household with a lot of gay men. And 
I knew I was conflicted and I didn't know how to explain it. But having said that, once I processed it with a therapist and really addressed it, it's interesting how quickly the mind moves on. Yeah. yeah. You know, once I had that aha, holy shit, that's obviously why yeah. I have this fear. Then I was able to really move on and start to develop a really wonderful relationship, which led to my wife. You know, now I'm, I wouldn't have been in a position to meet my wife, you yeah. know, intimately, right. emotionally, because I, there was that big block. You know, women were not a safe place for me. And alcohol and drugs were the only way I could feel safe. Right. You know, is I could numb all of that narrative, all those feelings and that like terror that I experienced. I could numb it all with alcohol and drugs and I could, I could quiet the voices and I could feel a little bit more comfortable in my skin. You know? How so old were you when that started? When, when I started drinking? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think I probably had my first drink at 10, 11. Uh, yeah. Just the yeah. wine. And, and when did drugs come in? I'd say probably 13, 14. And then it was standard 16, 17. You know, it was every day, 16, 17. And, and what was your drug of choice? Oh, man. It started with, I mean, if marijuana is considered a drug, started out with that and harmless en enough. And, you know, cocaine, probably sophomore, junior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And then and then cocaine, you know, and then, but methamphetamine and everything. You know, I've been through wow. kind of periods of, of every type right. of drug. You know, even crack cocaine, going through a really dark period with that drug. And just anything to escape the... Constant narrative that I'm not enough, constant narrative that I don't belong, that I don't fit in, that I'm, I don't meet people's expectations of me. That was a big one for me, expectations. And yeah. I always felt like I could be what people wanted me to be when I was intoxicated. You yeah. Know, I could yeah. give them, I could be more right. affable, more agreeable, more like You were precarious. more charming and yeah. funnier and yeah. more, yeah. All those things. And I was scared to death that when I started, stopped drinking, I would lose all that, you know, that... I think that's probably what prevented me from ever taking that first step is my identity was just woven together with alcohol and drugs. You know, I, I don't know who I would be without those things. How old were you when you realized that your drinking and your drugging was really hurting your body? Oh, early, probably 18. I knew I was an alcoholic at 18. I mean, I knew 100% I was an alcoholic. And it kind of it gave me the ability to be somebody else. You know, I didn't necessarily yeah. like myself. And Alcohol and drugs really gave, especially drugs, gave me an ability to be someone else. I thought I needed it. I 100% thought I needed it, that there would be no me without it, and that I might as well go away if I don't have it. And that overwhelming feeling of not enough and yeah. needing to run away and hide, it would, if I didn't have alcohol or drugs in me, it would be there all the time. You know, a very overwhelming, powerful sensation. I'm so glad, even reflecting on it now, I'm so glad that that's behind me, that I don't live that anymore. And I didn't think it was possible. I, I really, for people who don't suffer with alcoholism and drug addiction, they don't realize that it, it's an identity thing. You you remove those alcohol and drugs, you might as well rename that person. You might as well, well take away their whole identity. That's what it was for me. You know, I just didn't think I could survive without it. When did your liver start to fail? It started to fail in probably 2007. I started to go through experiences. I started to put on weird weight in my stomach. Um, How old is, were you? I was 27. And 2007 Christmas, beginning of 2008, I started to turn yellow. Started to, it's this condition called ascites. When your liver and kidneys stop functioning, your blood and bile kind of accumulates in your belly. You look pregnant. I mean, I had stretch marks and I had this huge, I mean, picture me completely yellow, uh, 140 pounds and just as sick as a sick person can look. You know, it's a really, really tough disease. When you go into liver failure, everything goes. You know, your skin turns yellow, you bruise very easily. I had this gigantic belly and I was too, 
I didn't know what to do. I was too scared to go to a doctor because I, I knew what was happening. And I knew that if you, you take did. Oh, yeah. yeah. I knew it had, I was in denial. I don't know that I would have told anyone that I knew what was happening to me, but I knew it had to be related. The amount of alcohol I was consuming was, it was next level. Were the people a, around you worried? Like telling you you should go to the doctor or? Well, I didn't have a lot of people that close to me. I, there wasn't a lot of people to hold me accountable. Yeah. And I was so good at bullshitting. I mean, I was a professional bullshit artist, you know, so. It was easy for me to turn it around on you. It was easy for me to try to make you feel sorry for me. That was really my go-to is if I can make people feel adequately sorry enough for me, then I can get what I need, which is money, shelter, drugs, alcohol, whatever. So how did you end up in the hospital? Oh, man, it was a, it was a tough one. I started, I mean, I got sicker and sicker and sicker by the week. So I'm watching myself. My eyes are yellow. So I just wore glasses all the time. Oh my God. I have this huge belly. I mean, literally nine months pregnant. And I my belly button's herniated too. So it's like poking out like this. So I'm duct taping my herniated belly button to my stomach so you can't see it. Oh my God. And, you know, I started vomiting blood. I lied to my dad, to be honest. I went to a, a doctor's appointment and doctor very clearly looked at my blood test and said, hey, you're in liver failure. You need to go to the hospital immediately. I'm sorry to tell you this. And because I'm an adult, you know, I was 28 at the time. My daddy wasn't there with me. Yeah. So I just walked out and told my dad, I said, we're good. He believed me. I kept that going for like a month or two because I was terrified. I mean, I knew the end was coming and I just thought, oh my God, I cannot do it. I mean, what people don't understand is the emotional fear, the toil that it takes on you emotionally when you realize alcohol and drugs, your best friend, the only thing that's keeping you going. I was very aware that it was dragging me down, that it was potentially going to end my life. But there's a codependency there. There's a need for it that is so so dramatically outweighs everything else. So I just did everything I could to keep my best friend. That included lying to as many people as possible. And I was just waiting to die, you know, and I yeah. just was getting sicker and sicker. And back then they have the pain chart. Yeah. So yeah. the pain chart is just a smiley face, yeah. a straight face, a frowny face, and then a frowny crying face. And if yeah. you point at the frowny crying face. They gave you drugs. They hook you up. That's right. So started with morphine and then Dilaudid. And then it was... It, you know, I had it every four hours for six weeks. And then I got so sick, they were talking about just sending me home on hospice care and just go be home with your with your oh, dad and your dog. Oh, my God. And so you know, I knew that I had less than 90 days to live without a transplant, but there was no way I was going to get six months sober to qualify. So there was really no hope. You know, our big ray of hope came with these guys are in my hospital room, and there's a guy at the foot of my bed. He's got a tie on, and he starts talking about how he got through liver failure in prison. And my dad's like, what? You know, we're in a real hospital and you got through this in prison and you're standing here? You know, so that was our first like bit of hope that really got us thinking maybe we can get through this. So pretty soon thereafter, my dad just said, you know, he'd been making phone call after phone call, trying to get into different programs. And Cedars Sinai, where I was born, Dr. Tram Tran, she's the head of transplant there. She basically said, if you can get to this hospital and get admitted through the emergency room, because they're not going to admit you to the program. But if you just show up through the emergency room because you're clearly sick enough, we will meet you. So that's what we did. Pulled everything out of my arms and signed out against doctor's <sighs> orders. And, and we sped to Cedars. And kind of the rest is history. They admitted me to the transplant program. So the Comprehensive Transplant Center helps you stay healthy enough mm. while you're waiting. First thing she did was take me off almost all my medicine. So I had to go through opiate withdrawal. Like She sent me home and said, stay near an emergency room. You're going to get sick. And I did. <laughs> you know, that was the worst thing. Opiate withdrawal is terrifying. It is a very difficult thing. And, you know, if you know anybody out there who's been through opiate withdrawal, hug them and, and give them a high five because they're champs. You mm -hmm. know, it's 
Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, you said this is the point in your life where you thought about suicide all day. Yeah, constantly. Every day. All the time. Because it was like the only thing I could do. I couldn't be proactive about anything else. And I was so sorry for myself and so pitiful. And I didn't know who I was. And I didn't, I was clearly like a huge burden to everyone around me. And and that night when I went through withdrawals, you know, that was, if I didn't have my dogs there, I, I would have taken my own life. I firmly believe that. But having them in the bed, having Marley next to me, and he was so strong. And so he just rooted me, you know, he just wow. brought me to the earth and, and helped me. Re- I mean, I was seeing blood pouring down the walls and demons in the ceiling and hearing voices in my head. And, you know, if I didn't have my dogs there to be like, yo, dude, you're, you're here. You're all right. You know, wow. I, it was a struggle. My dad didn't know the first thing about what to do, you know, and losing my bowels constantly. So it was just like the worst possible scenario, you know, having my dad have to care for me. And there was a, a moment, I, I talk about this pretty often, but I'd gone to the bathroom in bed and I went into the bathroom and tried to clean myself up and I'm completely naked. And I walk by the full length mirror and I'm just going, Oh my God, you know, like, what is that? Looking at myself in the mirror, you know, I couldn't recognize my my eyes. You know, you look yeah. at yourself no matter yes. phases of your life. You know you. Yes. You yes. know who you are. And I just went, oh, my God, who the fuck am I? You know, this overwhelming feeling of I have to end this. Like, this is just so out of control, you know. You're not even yourself anymore, you know. So when, when you got through your detox, mm-hmm. then what? Well, it was that day, you know, we were in the bathroom and that night and I'm weeping, looking in the mirror and just really not even sad, just, I mean, wailing. And I'm, I look behind me and my, all my dogs are in the bathroom with me and they're all looking up at me like everything is perfect. Like, you know, I'm just the <laughs> sexiest person on the planet. And and what was really important about that was so revealing is they, it was confirmation that, that I was there, that they, I was still there and that they knew I was there and that things were going to be okay. And yeah, that next day, I didn't go back to sleep. It was probably three in the morning and started journaling. That was like the first day of the rest of our life. We just started walking that morning. We live in the mountains and uh, I just took my dogs and, and tried to just connect, try to find connection to a higher power, connection to nature, connection to my dogs. So this walking in some miraculous way, healed you. Yeah, that's all we did was we walked several times a day as we just would hit the road. I knew I had to move. And then the things that happen when you're in nature, the things that happen when you're hiking at sunrise and at sunset, you know, the creatures that you see, and you can really just connect to something other than yourself. And I just read Thich Nhat Hanh too about walking meditations and how to try to focus yourself mindfully when you while you walk. And it was really, really, really helpful. And pretty soon thereafter, I started to get a little bit better and a little bit better. And I'm, I'm going to meetings and I'm, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And, and then I to, read you started adopting more dogs and trying yeah. to help them find homes and making yeah. posters. And that was the best thing. What happened was I, I started bringing dogs into my and in my pack, you know, yeah. I started fostering for the Humane Society locally and, and working with another rescue called Canine Canyon Ranch and brought all these animals into my house kind of one, two, three at a time. And we would just walk. We would just walk and we'd always write on my first person and just come up with dumb things that were interesting. Like try to make it more than just snuggles here is a pretty little, little, little you know, right. just try to make it interesting <laughs> and give the dogs a voice and make it comical and funny and and so my community saw this yellow guy with a belly running around with dogs all over the place, putting up flyers and all this stuff. And they're like, huh, you know, what's this all about? And then I started to get some confidence. I started to get some self-esteem. I started to feel like decent about myself. And I needed to, to do something to feel better about myself. And, and also I needed to not think about myself. I was obsessed with all my bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I needed to be into someone else's bullshit. Mm-hmm. In this case, these dogs. So these dogs needed me too. And, and I don't think I'd felt needed 
So yeah, Marley's Mutts just happened. I didn't even come up with a name. It was just, we did this 100 hours a week, seven days a week for years. It was all I did. Was From your dad's house? From the garage, yeah. Just started, I kind of like fabricated the the garage and built some fences and some kennels and just started bringing dogs in and recruited some fosters. I was just, was, I didn't have a lot of confidence, you know? Yeah. And I also didn't know what was, I didn't know the landscape. I didn't yeah. know how to navigate the nonprofit world. And, uh, but sure enough, we just went ahead and did it. And Marley was my dog. He's a Rottweiler pit bull. And back then, you know, 12 years ago, it was a lot of purebred rescues. There wasn't, yeah. you know, there's probably in LA, there's probably 400 more rescues now than there were back then. It was a, it was a different world back then. And there wasn't any mutt rescues. I All love the dogs that term, I had, the throwaways that you use yeah. a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I definitely, I relate to these dogs on a, on many levels. You know, I, I know exactly what it's like to feel like a throwaway person and to be considered a throwaway person, you know, by your friends and family and then to be kind of misunderstood and to have people lose hope in you. But what you're doing is you're finding the dogs that are meant to die. Yeah. That are quote unquote hopeless cases that need to amputations, things that just, it's not just like a nice regular rescue of mutts where you go in and you, you know, you intentionally took the most broken dogs. Yeah. That's the biggest underwriting theme of rescue is valuing every single life, you know, which is a bigger narrative for society. Just to understand that every single thing, every single living being has this immense potential if we only believe in them and give them a chance and and that we ought not be so quick to write people, pets, or other things off. You know, we as a nation are so quick to throw people away, to just forget about people, to throw them away, to cast judgment on them and to send them into the, the bowels of hell, you know, and it felt really good. It feels really good to be a part of injecting hope where there isn't any. And we've also empowered a lot of, I know I'm kind of skipping ahead, but some of our our inmate graduates, guys who have been through our programs in prison who are now out of prison, they have that same relatability. Like Jamal and Jason and Troy, some of our, and Daniel especially, a lot of these guys who spent a lot of time in prison yeah. who have felt that same judgment, that same, their ability to relate and connect with dogs who are behavioral cases. Yeah. You know, dogs that, because it's very obvious when a dog needs amputation or a jaw removed or right. this or that or burned or whatever. But when they're, the dogs are emotionally off and you damaged. Know, I, I guess spiritually damaged. Yeah. yeah. And they yeah. need to gain trust and connect. Those guys are incredible with that ability to can connect you, and to and relate. Can you, what's the name of that? It's called program? Positive Change, P-A-W, obviously. And just for our <laughs> listeners, what is the program exactly? Yeah, Positive Change is a comprehensive inmate canine rehabilitation and training program that we operate in seven prisons and one girls' juvenile facility. So the only girls' juvenile facility in the country where rescue dogs live on premises and uh, rehabilitate alongside the repeat offender girls. Yeah, the program has been going for four years now. We started at California City Correctional Facility We've expanded to, uh, we have two programs at North Kern State Prison, which is a level three, Wasco State Prison, level three. We're starting at Tehachapi State Prison, which is right next door to our ranch next week. And we're also looking at Norco and Victorville, a federal women's prison. We're really excited to get the women's yeah. prison going up. The thing that is so powerful to me is that on your Instagram account, you put up the videos of these men in prison who have gone through your program and they talk with such love and self-love mm-hmm. and gratitude. And you can see the pride that they have, that they have been able to love this being to health. Yeah. 
And you can see that they now realize that they have value, that they can contribute to society. 100%. Yeah, that's a testimony to the, the girls, all of our trainers. It's mostly women, but Robert too, Robert Vineda and John Flores and Ty and Sam and Kim and Fiona. They're all, and Stephanie, they're, we have powerful women to pause on a women's empowerment moment. You know, our girls, our women go into those prisons, you know, which are very intimidating places where, you know, these are our men who have been locked up for many years who haven't interacted with a woman outside of a correctional officer, which is very, very different right, in a right. long time. And these women give of themselves. They hear these men and they see these men and they guide these men and they direct these men and they listen and they, there's so much empathy and there's so much, some of the transformations are unbelievable. For instance, at California City, one of our guys, Edo, you know, he came in, I don't think I heard him say a word for the first two programs. And he's been transformed. He's a, for lack of a better description, a hobo. He spent most of his life on the streets, you know, facial tattoos. He's younger than me, but um, all of his life incarcerated and indifferent. And again, I didn't hear him say a word. And what the girls have done to inspire him and to have him believe in himself. I mean, he's now a mentor trainer. He's a lead trainer in the program. So he hosts class often. He runs wow. class along with, you know, a couple of the other guys. Also guys who are not extroverts. These are people that they, because they pour their heart into these, into these individuals, these guys feel believed in and they feel empowered to, to change themselves and to work on themselves. It's really a program of rigorous honesty. It's an honest place. You have to be able to look at yourself Honestly, one of the big tenets we always focus on is whatever you're experiencing, anxiety, fear, loneliness, anger, whatever you're experiencing, you're going to transmit through that leash into your dog. Yeah. And if you're not being honest with yourself, if you're not evaluating what you're feeling, you might mess up that dog. You know, you need to pass the leash off and then you need to breathe. You need to repeat a mantra. You need to talk to one of your friends. You need to talk to one of us and, and get yourself right so that then you can pick up the leash and, and work again. So it's always being mindful of your energy first. Mm. You know, that's what it's all about, being mindful of your energy, not just reacting, but being mindful of your energy. And that's what's going to lead them to succeed on the outside moving forward is not being reactive and instead looking at yourself first. Always look at yourself first, not look right. at other people. Look at you and look at what you can do to establish harmony inside of yourself, you know? And I love the reading about how so many of these people go on and have jobs when they leave prison and have are proud of themselves yeah. and can speak with people because the dogs also help them have something to talk about or make mm -hmm. their families proud of them again. All of those things. All and of those things. Incredible. It's so critically important. And if we don't talk about it, it would be, we'd be doing a huge disservice to our community. The prison system in America is, just to throw out some statistics, we spend $180 billion a year locking people up. We incarcerate 2.3 million people in America. 2.3 million. 25% of the world's incarcerated people are in the United States. Not China, not Russia, not yeah. North Korea. The U.S. We have the amount of prisons that popped up in the in California during the '90s is is obnoxious. I mean, the entire Central Valley is full of prisons. There's like 17 prisons. You know, yeah. the average cost to incarcerate one inmate for a year, one person in the state of California is eighty three thousand dollars. It's more than I make a year. It costs more to lock a person up in California for a year than it does for a nonprofit director to you know. <laughs> On top of that, it costs four hundred grand to incarcerate a child in the state of California. And I think the average nationally is closer to fifty k. It's more expensive than California, but nonetheless, I mean, we are spending massive amounts of money, and the recidivism rate is within three years, roughly half of those guys yeah. are back in prison. Within six years, it's closer to seventy percent. Within nine years, it's closer to ninety percent are back in prison. These are violent offenders. So we're just sending people back to prison on this vicious cycle. 
And not only are they going to prison, but their entire families are going to prison. There's 10 million kids directly affected by incarcerated parents. And what do you think those kids are going to do from this point on? Who do they have to look up to? What's the cycle they're going to enter into? So all these factors are so critical. And for whatever reason, America has done a really good job just casting these people away and dressing them up in blue and orange and saying, mm -hmm. oh, well, you're bad people. Right. We're going to slap prisoner on your jumpsuit and we're going to cause you to, you know, we're going to have you live in a, in a shoebox with thousands of other dangerous individuals. And no part of the process does the correctional system federally or state really look at correcting. The, yeah. At, at what, what can we <laughs> do for you? Yeah. 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 It's it's punitive first. And then if we can get some programming, hopefully, you know, make it happen. And there have been some really good strides. California, for sure. You know, AB 109 and Prop 57 and a bunch of different things have helped nonviolent offenders get kind of recategorized, helped people with drug offenses get out. And yeah. other violent offenders have been recategorized. They now have a chance to get out of prison and prove themselves. And, and man, I just feel some of these, you guys got to understand, like some of the people I've met inside are some of the most brilliant people I've ever interacted well, with. How some did you most... convince these prisons to allow you to come in and implement oh, such man, a... it was a long time. It was a, it was a process. Now it's different. They're much more open-minded to programming. But when we started doing like eight years ago is when I, or nine years ago is when we started trying to get into different jails and institutions. And we just couldn't get in. We had a meeting after meeting and, you know, we're volunteering to pay for it. We still pay for it. You know, wow. we don't get, none of our programs at this current moment are funded by the state. They're not? Or the county or oh, anything. Wow. We, I didn't know that. No, you guys, that's, you guys fund it. <laughs> that's crazy. It's people that support our organization that fund our program. So we'll be eligible for some grants through the next round of innovative program grants through California Department of Corrections, yeah. which is great. You know, they are putting money towards this and the state did just pass an additional $6 million to go. Uh, this is with the state budget. So hopefully some really good things will happen and. To be honest, I got to give credit to the federal government for passing the First Step Act, which was yeah. at least something comprehensive that it hasn't really created a bunch of programming or funded a bunch of programming, yeah. but it's laid the groundwork for programming to be a priority. Obviously, the federal government can only control federal prisons, which is only 2% yeah. of the prison population. But I just have such a heart for these these guys. I mean, these I went in with this, some of the same judgments. I don't think I was as honest with myself yeah. back then, but mm -hmm. I went in with a lot of the same judgments, same preconceived notions of this is a scary place. These are scary people. Right. And now it's the place of greatest healing for me. I mean, I've been through some shit these last couple of years, you know, just as an, as a human being and the biggest place of peace for me is, is in prison with our guys is relating with them and talking to them about life. And if you think about it, these guys are in the crucible of fire right now. And if you can get through 10 plus years in prison, you can get through a lot. And these guys are neck deep in it, trying to maintain relationships, trying to maintain their sanity. And what they can offer in terms of spiritual guidance, especially the guys who are working on themselves, it's incredible. I mean, I learned how to meditate from an inmate. You know, Kiosk, I had the hardest time learning how to meditate and just spending time with him in class and having him have me close my eyes and wow. picture my thoughts coming in and out like a balloon and, and giving myself permission <laughs> to be imperfect and all these things. You know, I thought I was broken. I didn't think I had the capacity yeah. to meditate. And what happens to the dogs once they go through the program in the prison? They all get adopted. Like, for instance, I think right now we have about 35 dogs living in, in prison. And usually what happens is they go in, we'll take pictures and stuff in prison and before and put them up on the website. And then you can apply to adopt and then usually most of them get adopted basically the weekend they get out of prison. What we're training in prison is the Canine Good Citizen Certification. So what the structure we use is that test. It's a 10-point test that helps you get your dog to 
like therapy certification. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and getting the one thing I wanted to make sure I didn't skip over is the pet industry is a seventy billion dollar industry. The music industry is a thirty-five billion dollar industry, so it's twice as big as the music industry, and it's oh recession proof. Two thousand eight, the economy was in a recession, and I think the pet industry grew by like eleven percent. It's something that's always going to be there. So for me, I think about the dozens of guys we have ready to get out of prison in our program and how each and every one of them, should they want to, can be plugged into this line of work when they get out of prison. All of them, they're ready to go as soon as they get out. And if we set them up with social media accounts, LinkedIn, Instagram, that kind of stuff to help them hit the ground running, that transition from prison dog trainer to dog trainer on the outside is seamless. You know, these guys know how to hustle for themselves and they know how to be passionate about something and they know how to work hard. And that's what's required. And I I really think it's an incredible way to address recidivism is to plug people into the pet industry. How many dogs have you saved? Oh, man, I have no idea. No clue. I mean, thousands. The thing that is really extraordinary to me is I'm a dog lover and I follow a lot of rescues. But there is something so personal about yours. And there's something really redemptive about what you do. It's like you tell us the story, you show us the ugly of what human beings do to animals, and you show us, I am looking at it and I see a picture and I'm like, oh, there's nothing to be done. You have to put that dog down. And then you are teaching everybody, including me, that no, no, you don't give up. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, I followed Cora's trip. You know, Cora is yeah. his adorable little poodle. Kind my of, little light worker. Yeah, she's a light worker. <laughs> and she, you know, and I remember seeing the picture of her. Then the whole thing about, okay, we're going to amputate. And the whole question of, well, what kind of quality of life will she have? Yeah. And you are educating everybody. Yeah. And that, I didn't know either, you know, I just, you follow your intuition and you try to hold on to your gut and just hope that there's a way. And with these dogs, we didn't really know. I didn't know of any other double front leg amputees. So I was very, I was worried. I didn't know that she would be okay, but I just had a feeling that she would and, you know, had support from other people. And that's a big part of it too, is, is the support from this whole the community is creating like a community of, of rescue minded people. And you really want to yeah. give people part of the experience of, look, you're, we can't do this without you. You're just as big a part of this as I am in addressing what you're talking about with vulnerability and I am as imperfect as they come. I think most of us are. If I could snap my fingers and change anything, it would be that we are all given the the right and the uh, the passage to just be flawed. We were all walking around waiting to mess up. We all have this waiting for the other shoe to drop feeling like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. At any mm-hmm. moment, I could be judged. I could be this. I could be that. I'm not doing this right. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not handsome enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not this. I'm not that. We're just so critical of ourselves. So a big part of it is just... I think a big part of why I'm so vulnerable on social media is I just want to get it out. You know, I'm just talking about whatever's happening inside. I don't want to hold on to it. I'm just letting it letting it go. And then what happens is people relate, you know? Yeah, and then that's absolutely. that's connection. That's what life is all about. And even though it's on social media, even though it's digital, you're still connecting. You know, and that's how we connect these days. So my biggest goal, what I try to do, and I don't always do it very well, is is connect, is just try to show people that it's okay to be who you are. What ended up happening with your health? I'm still a comprehensive transplant patient. I had a real miraculous kind of series of developments, which is I got better. You know, I had stage four cirrhosis of the liver. It's called acute alcoholic hepatitis. You know, usually what happens with cirrhosis is you don't get better. It's scarring of the liver. Right. Um, so initially, 
for the first two, three years, it was just, he's going to need a liver transplant. You know, something is going to happen. Basically, what they said is, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And then everything changed, too. I mean, I changed my whole diet. Everything changed. I had a much more conscious diet, no red meat, mostly whole fruits and vegetables, you know, smoothies for two of my meals every day. I did everything I could physically to get better. And then, obviously, being active. You know, I had to, had to be active, but... Where I stand now is I have stage three fibrosis, which is much different than cirrhosis. You know, when you have had cirrhosis of the liver, those things grow on your liver. So they have to keep a real close eye and make sure that I don't develop any of those things because then I'll have to get back into action physically. And there are things I can do to mediate that. Yeah, you know, yeah, there, yeah. Are, there are things I obviously have to stay away from. And, no, I just, you know, I, it, it just seems like the dogs healed you. Oh, 100%. Not only did they heal me, I, I wouldn't have been able to physically heal myself if I didn't have them. And then emotionally was the big thing. It was like, how in the fuck do I go about life? I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to start. Where, what am I supposed to do? I don't have a college degree. I worked as a door guy at the improv for the last <laughs> two or three years. You know, I can't do that anymore. I'm sober and now scared and feeling everything. And I'm just trying to get better every day and try to learn from my mistakes and uh, try to be aware of as much as I can and I hold myself accountable. But physically, I think what I'm focused on is having another baby and trying to live this life to the fullest. You know, I still have a lot of dark thoughts. I still have a lot of dark feelings, you know, that perk up. And I still don't know how to handle interpersonal relationships to the best of my ability, you mm -hmm. know. But I'm just trying to give myself some grace. And experiences like this are uh, couldn't happen at better times. You know, there's a certain level of affirmation that comes with sitting across this table from you guys where I just go, all right, Scow. You're doing okay. Because you know, you're when you're in it, you don't realize it. You're just plugging away. It's the next thing. You're just focused on, I got to be, we got to get the program in more prisons. We need to raise more money. Oh my God, we're going to lose this program. Oh, we got to do this. We got to do that. You know, got to feed the baby, wipe her butt, we got to the dog with it. You know, and it's just, when you're in it, you don't realize that you're doing okay. You know, and so to sit and pause and kind of think about it and see the expression And see my face, expression, you yeah. know, it's like you actually, you figured out something that our federal government never could which is how to help people who are incarcerated, Yeah, you know, step out with skills and with hope. Yeah, and this is what it's all about. Like this little community that we've got here and all the people we're reaching, this is what it's all about. I can't take this past a certain level without your help. Right. You know, I wouldn't have had the ability to believe in myself and to be as gutsy with a lot of my words if I didn't have people like Jason Flom who let me be audacious enough to step out and and just speak passionately about what I feel. I don't know if you guys know who Jason Flom is, but he helped found the Innocence Project and he has yeah. a podcast called Wrongfully Convicted. And just one of those guys who has a lot of connections and heard me be passionate and he reached out and he's like, man, you keep doing it. I got wow. your back. And, wow. and when people when people take time like yourself, when you texted me, I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> we're, we're on the right path. Like we're doing something right. It's like universal affirmation. This is what it's all about. Well, I mean, you are such an incredible example of someone who was facing death and you didn't give up and you ended up creating something that is so magnificent and so impactful. And I just know that anyone who listens to this is going to be inspired and feel like, hey, you know, those things that I thought, hey, maybe I, I want to do that. No, I can't. Like, they'll hear you and be like, oh, he yeah. said that he couldn't. And then he did. Yeah. There's nothing special about me either. You know, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm, I, you know, I, there's a lot of things that I lack. And if I can do it just with dogged determination, I know, you know, anybody can. Can you tell us what Miracle Mutts is? Yeah, Miracle Mutts is... If we didn't have positive change, it'd be my my favorite program. So <laughs> Cora is, is part of the Miracle Mutts. She's not a full 
patched member, but Miracle Muds is our therapy program. So Miracle Muds go around to, I think we've partnered with close to a hundred nonprofits. So, I mean, like wow, everybody in our community. So it's a group of therapy dogs, a couple dozen therapy dogs with different levels of, they're color-coded. So a red vest dog is bulletproof. They can be put in any situation, whether it's Hoffman Hospice or Blood and Cancer Centers of America or right. Mountain Pathways. So it's usually schools for autistic children, regular schools, you know, mm-hmm. grade schools, high schools, old folks' homes, just wherever, honestly, wherever you can bring dogs to have them cheer people up. And you are also looking into creating a camp for foster kids? Yeah, that's the goal at the ranch. We've been really focused on that and trying to, to a degree, we're kicking the can down the road because there's only so much funding. You know, we we had a really robust spay and neuter campaign for like six years. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, we had 80% euthanasia rate in our county when we started, 80. Oh you know, that's God. tens of thousands of dogs every year that are euthanized just in our county, just Kern County. Oh my God. We're now down, I think it's 30%. And a big part of that was spay and neuter and we, we just couldn't fund it. We couldn't, it's not a sexy program to fund and it was very difficult to do so. So yeah, we don't have a lot of money to put towards camp right now, but we're building out the ranch slowly but surely to focus on basically a canine community center. So for someone who is so profoundly sensitive, mm-hmm. I see you on videos saying, okay, we have to see how the surgery goes tonight. And I've seen dogs pass, mm-hmm. you know, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah, They're in your arms. You are their champion. You mm-hmm. are the ones who are like, no, we're not going to give up. How do you deal with the loss. Ding, ding, ding. Best question of the interview, by far. You just hit the nail on the head. What we do is we make mourning a collective experience. Mourning is an incredible opportunity to be emotional and oftentimes gives people the excuse to be emotional. Oftentimes, we don't allow ourselves to be emotional unless we're mourning something. We have an excuse when we're mourning. Something's died. Somebody's died. Something has hit you over the head emotionally. So we have this final gift program. And on the surface, it sounds too painful. So, you know, we take terminal shelter dogs and we give them a last hurrah. You know, we just take them out for whether they have a day or a week or sometimes a month. I've sat in my room crying just watching you Mm -hmm. taking one. You said, okay, this is our last day and we're going to go on a hike. Yep. And you see this dog like happy. And we're going to cry like babies, all of us. We're going to be emotional as fuck and it's going to be ugly and it's going to hurt. But we're going to do it together and let's create some fellowship around this. Let's mourn. Let's think about it. Let's not push it aside. Let's not feel nasty about it. Let's just understand. Let's honor this animal. Let's honor this life. And... There's nothing better than that. You know, like we're going to do it. It's going to happen. Dogs are going to die. People are going to die. It's going to be awful. And if we just get angry about it, it's not going to do us any good. But if we can be, if we can emote together and if we can feel it together, then it's just beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it's hard. And if we can all come together over a dog and let out whatever, we could be crying about whatever. Yeah. But, but it's just an excuse to cry. It's an excuse to emote. It's an excuse to feel. And, uh, and we don't give ourselves permission to do that enough, you know? Absolutely. It's incredible. I love being a dad. I was scared to death of being a dad. I was very scared of having a boy because I thought I didn't mm-hmm. want to. Again, it's my ego. I didn't want to produce a human being that was going to have all the same flaws I do. Mm-hmm. You know? And now I'm ready for a boy. You know, I think I could deal with it. But back then I was so terrified of having a boy because yeah. I'm still tough on myself. You know, I'm still very hard on myself. And uh, I think obviously we all are. But uh, yeah, she's the, the greatest gift ever. I'm so – I wasn't a person who – thought myself worthy or capable of being a parent. You know, Mm -hmm. I just didn't give myself credit enough. Obviously, I have a very, like, talented, gifted, wonderful wife who 
you know, I wouldn't be able to do it without her. Right. But I was born to be a dad. You know, I'm a, I love being a dad. Well, I you're a dad a to every one of these dogs. Yeah. Oh, and it definitely, that was the, the last, I've been indoctrinated into parenthood over the last you know, 15 years. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm used to cleaning up poop and staying up all yeah. night and you know, all that kind of stuff I'm used to. So it was. Look um, at so She said, are you talking about me? You highlight a lot of some really great foster parents. Mm-hmm. And that's something I knew nothing about. And I think it would be really great for our listeners to understand what makes a good foster parent. And if you want to do that, how you go about doing it. Yeah, fostering is, there's a lot of ways to get involved. Fostering is obviously a more immersive way to get involved because you're bringing an animal into your house. Mm -hmm. But it's really not as difficult as people might think it is. You don't have to have a perfect house. You don't have to have a perfect dog. You don't have to be the perfect pet parent. Well, I think we should highlight that Marley's Mutts was named the best nonprofit of the year in California for 2019. Yeah, yeah, for our district of California, yeah. That was really incredible. We got to go up to Sacramento with a couple of our graduates, went with Cool and Troy, and uh, yeah, we got to go on the the floor of the assembly and, and accept our honors. We had some other meetings up there to talk about our program, and it was incredible. Is it surreal what you've built? It is such an incredibly inspiring story. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's just... It's funny because I don't really think about it much until we, we sit down and go over it. You know, it's not something that uh And then you're like, shit, I have been through it. And then, shit, look what I did. I'm a badass. <laughs> I, I uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go there, I suppose. You yes. Know? Yeah. Come on. You've, you've earned it. I want to end with something that I think is pretty profound. It's something that makes sense, but I haven't thought about before. You said you feel like a kinship to the animals deemed less desirable by society, creatures whose emotional scars were planted so often by no fault of their own. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's something when when you see really, really broken animals, you just always have to remember that, you know. I see parallels all the time with all of us. We are all like Cora. We all have missing emotional legs. Mm -hmm. We've all been through really traumatic things that maybe we shove down or bury or don't acknowledge. And there's so much pressure on us to be perfect and to be some ideal, some sort of unattainable ideal. And I'm just not, nor will I ever be. And and that's why I relate to the dog so much is they're they're very outwardly imperfect. Although I think most dogs are perfect in in some way. Their dogs are better than human beings, no question. And that's one, you know, one thing I, b- <laughs> before we like end on that, yeah. I, I really, people are so good, man. We get hung up on people are bad. And, you know, a lot of the dogs we've seen have had things done to them yeah. that are bad, but gosh darn it, people are good. There are good people out there and it's a good world. And I know there's a lot of bad shit happening and we can feel fractured and separated and segregated and like people don't understand us. And like we, you know, maybe we need to run away or escape this or, but man, on a regular basis and the messages I read and the connections that we have now, like the world is okay. We're doing okay and we're going to be okay. We can't lose sight of that. I love you. Oh my God. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and please join us next week as we speak to the incredible activist and artist, Patrice Cullors, the freedom fighter. We are Deborah Messing and Mandana Dayani and you have been listening to The Dissenters. Thank you all so much for tuning in. If you like today's show, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. 
You can go to thedissenters.com to see the full list of our 20 dissenters. We love seeing the support on social, so please tag us at the dissenters, at the real Deborah Messing, at Mandana Dayani. And please continue sending us suggestions for badass dissenters we should feature. Please tune in next Thursday to meet our next brilliant dissenter. This show is produced by me, Deborah Messing, Mandana Dayani, Erica First, and Dear Media. Our music was written by Brady Cohen, and images were shot by Justin Campbell.